Welcome to today's edition of Feet to the Fire, where we're always challenging the status quo. For more cutting-edge commentary, go to feettothefire.org. That is feet, the number two, thefire.org. And now your host. There it is, 10-10, we are a go. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We pray that you would guide us through the book of Ephesians, that you would put your words in my mouth to speak uh, clearly the truth. Bless all the other Sunday schools as well for the edification of the saints, for the salvation of the lost, uh, all of the teaching of your word. We commit this time to you. We thank you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Christianity is a religion of works. Christianity is a religion of deeds. In fact, works matter. That's the name of today's message. Works matter. Let that hang in the air and sink in. That works matter. People question if when a statement is made for shock value, it is worth making at all. Yes, indeed, if there is merit in the content, then one ought to state it and double down. It's more than shock. It's a strong and precise and intentional dose of truth. But what was just clearly stated, that works matter, can clear a room of modern evangelicals nearly as fast as saying patriarchy is a great thing, which it is. The fact is we are living in an age of an atrophied Christianity, a workless, lethargic, lukewarm evangelicalism that abuses grace as an excuse to sin. An evangelicalism that allegedly claims to decry legalism, for sure, but with a self-righteous, hypocritical, pharisaical attitude that says, don't judge me, don't hold me to any standard, I'm forgiven. And then it claims grace as justification for a life that remains untransformed, godless, and worldly. The modern iteration, listen, in recent years, especially on social media and among countless Christian authors and influencers, even in seminary textbooks, and notably a favorite among female voices is this, life's just messy. Have you heard that? Please strike that vain, trendy, culture-speak from your vocabulary. Life's just messy. No, we are not called Christians to live messy lives. Using grace to excuse and continue in the sin that we love to cherish. We are not called to be messy. We are called to holiness. To a faith wherein the resurrection power at work in us, did we not discuss that last week? The resurrection power at work in us, what we studied last week, transforms us with ever-increasing likeness into the very image of the Son himself, from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3. This cheap grace, this workless Christianity, listen, has become a chink in the armor of evangelicalism, a weak point, a reason for reproach. And it is high time that we shed that reproach and repudiate it as evangelicals. 
So how did we get here today to this topic? Well, beginning, I'm going to go fast through a brief overview of the last two weeks. Ready? Beginning back in 1, 1 to 14, we learned this, the first week. Blessed be God for so great a salvation, indeed an election of you from the very beginning that is headed toward final redemption to the praise of God's glory. That was the first week. Second week, at the end of chapter 1, we learned in light of this great salvation, let us then grow in the knowledge of God in his calling, his inheritance, and his surpassingly great resurrection power by which he raised Christ and ascended Christ and subjected to Christ all things for us, the church. And now in chapter 2, we learn this. Grow in this knowledge. Why? Because realize, Christian, once you also were dead sinners steeped in the condemned mire of sin, but this grace appeared to save you and to seat you with Christ. All for these twin purposes. One, to demonstrate his glorious grace in the coming age. That's repeated from chapter one. And two, now, practically in this age, for the doing of good works, for deeds which God prepared in advance. And that, dear friends, is the practical trajectory, listen, of the first 33 verses of the book of Ephesians. Do the deeds of God. Christian, do good works. Works matter. What is the trajectory of our salvation in this life? That's the question. Here's our thesis. Works matter in the Christian life. Therefore, therefore, consider your old way of life and flee. Consider God's saving grace and glorify him and do the good works to which God has called you. Let's read Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And we, being dead in our trespasses and sins, in which once we walked according to the age of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit, the one now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all lived once in the lusts of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the minds, and We, by nature, being children of wrath, as also the rest, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love, his great love, which with which with he loved us, and being all of us dead in the transgressions, he raised us together in no, he made us alive, excuse me, made us alive together in Christ with Christ. For it is by grace you are having been saved. And he raised us and he seated us in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. In order that he might demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing riches of his grace in his kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you are having been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves of God the gift. Not of works. In order that no one might boast, for we are God's workmanship. We are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he beforehand prepared, prepared in advance. God prepared in advance in order that in these works we might walk. Amen. How tragic when the bride, the church, abandons the very earthly purpose for which God lavished upon her and adorned her with so great a salvation, which purpose is to repent from the sin that kills and conform to the ascended and reigning Christ. 
That is what we are to do, conform to the ascended and, raising, ascended and reigning Christ. So, number one, our first point for today. You guys with me? All right. This is good stuff. We're going fast. Here we go. Consider your sinful past and flee. Consider your sinful past and flee. What is the condition of man descended from Adam that we just read in this text? Very clearly stated. All men are spiritually dead. And that is a key principle in our theology. We are dead in our trespasses and sins and in the way that we once formerly walked. How, how dead? Totally dead. And this is what Reformed theologians call total depravity. There's a repeated deadness in sins in verse 1 and verse 5. You being dead, and then he makes it all of us being dead. Isaiah 59, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Listen, you are cut off from God, who is the source of life because of your sin, rendering you totally dead. A dead organism is unresponsive. When you see a dead animal on the street, I'm not making a joke here. You have to understand the metaphor, the, the, the literal metaphor. You see a dead animal on the street. You see a dead corpse in a coffin. It is unresponsive. It is entirely dead. You must see the spiritual condition of man in this way. It's the only proper biblical view. In fact, this is our hopeless situation. Unable to choose God exactly like Lazarus in the tomb. Did he get himself out? Was he awake? Could he have gotten himself out? No, he was totally dead. A corpse. Dead things don't make choices. This is original sin. As we are born in Adam, we carry original sin. There is no sense in protesting, as the liberals like to do today, of unfairness or otherwise. You were, listen, in the loins of your forebears before your birth, all the way back to Adam, like begets like kind. You were born from the flesh of sinners, all the way back to Adam. Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 6, paragraph 2, 3, and 4. Listen to this. Our first parents, this is 1689, our spiritual forebears, the Baptists. Our first parents, by the sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body, they being the root, Adam and Eve, and by God's appointment standing in the room and stead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed, and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. Wouldn't it be great if people wrote that way today? Check out the Second London Baptist Confession. Hence, election. Listen, dear Christian, you cannot save yourself and understand that you did not save yourself. You were dead. Prior to Christ, a man is writhing under his sin and God's impending judgment as a child of wrath, whether or not he is aware. That's what the scriptures say very emphatically. Did you hear me read it? We are, by nature, children of wrath, as are also the others. 
whether or not a man is aware, he is writhing under his sin and God's impending judgment. And that's Paul's point. That is what we were by nature. John 8, all men are children of the devil. Born that way, they are doing his will, likewise you, prior to your regeneration. And then we see descriptions of the sinful existence throughout verses 1 to 4. Observe three sources of evil. The course of this world, the desires of our flesh, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In other words, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You always see that trio in scripture. So, again, drawing from those first three verses. You walked according to the age of this world, or according to the course of this world. That's the world system. The broader culture. We said last week, the spirit of the age. Remember I said that funny German word, zeitgeist? That's the the cultural spirit of the age. The rebellious framework and structure of a rebellious world. We lived according to that. We also lived according to the ruler of the authority or the power or the kingdom of the air. The spirit now energizing in the sons of disobedience. That's what it says. Uh, So what does all that mean? Most commentators agree that the air refers to demonic spiritual forces. This is obviously the ruler being the devil, ruling the demonic horde, and by such dark powers, energizing wicked men in their wickedness. It doesn't mean that every unbeliever is possessed by Satan or by a demon, but it means the engine of dark powers are moving in the world and in and among the unbelievers in the world. Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, there is certainly, I want you to notice this, a running power theme contrasting evil power with Christ's power. Do you remember last week... It's the same verb I told you from the Greek energeo, from, the, from which we get the word energize or work. God worked in Christ. There's a conspicuous contrast between Satan's power and Christ's power with Christ, the obvious victor. So if you remember going back to last week in chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. I'll just briefly read it to you. And what is the surpassing greatness of the power of his power in us, the ones believing, according to the working of the strength of his might, which he worked, which he energized in Christ, having raised him from the dead. That's the same verb that's used to describe the spirit now at work, energizing the sons of disobedience. You see the contrast? And yet Christ is the victor. Because we know in that same passage, all of this evil was subjected to his feet. We also here address the modern dismissal of Satan as a literal personality. That's very chic now is to dismiss him as a literal personality, as a real being, an arc ruler over the kingdom of darkness. Though the skeptics may call it old-fashioned and superstitious and primitive and ignorant, we know what the Bible testifies. There is a real person, personality in real existence, the fallen archangel Satan, the devil, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, we lived also, so that's the world, the devil, and now the flesh. Paul says, we lived among unbelievers, yoked with them, entrenched in the desires of our flesh, under compulsion by the flesh. Do you see that? Doing the will of the flesh and the mind. Do you see that at the end of, or the middle of verse 3? Among whom also we all walked once in the lusts of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the minds. 
Notice the hostility of our own flesh away from God and toward wickedness. That's the compulsion of man in his flesh, is away from God. And it also goes back to the argument made last week that there is a captivity of the mind. And only the true knowledge of God transforms, liberates, and enlightens the mind. Are you guys following me? It's very conspicuous that he doesn't just say the flesh. He says the lust of the flesh... And the depravity of the flesh and of the what? The mind. This is a battle for the mind, which the mind, which is hostile to God, Romans 8, 7. And the mind is held hostage by the devil, 2 Timothy 2. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 22. Wraps it up really well and shows the importance of the transformed mind. Flee the evil desires of youth. That's evil. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them, listen, to a knowledge of the truth, that's the mind, and that they will come to their senses, the mind, and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I repeat from last week, we must wage war against the assault on the mind, an offensive war we have to wage, not defensive. We are degraded in our minds. Our children are degraded and being degraded. And the starting point of remediating the situation is careful instruction and bold preaching of the word of God and subsequently all manner of thinking proceeding from the knowledge of God. I am convinced this is why so many foolish and stupid arguments, citing 2 Timothy 2, by the way, I just quoted Paul. I just took that out of the passage and have time to read it, but that's Paul. This is why I'm convinced so many foolish and stupid arguments and foolish and stupid ideas and notions and vain thinking has gained a grip on the church. Deviant thinking from lack of sound preaching and subsequently downstream from that sound thinking. Off my notes, an example. You cannot very often find a Christian who can theologically articulate the ethical imperative of capitalism. Did you hear what I just said? They cannot articulate why capitalism is an ethical imperative for the Christian. Because they have a degraded mind with degraded theology and then can't extrapolate out into life. So now you have the Christian socialists. What? That's doctrines of demons. But we don't think properly because our minds are not being fed with sound preaching. Finally, I do want to address the conspicuous thing in this passage. A word on this wrath that we keep, keeps coming up. We're by nature children of wrath. And to the non-believer and to the liberal Christian, this is like, they can't handle that, okay? But I want to speak about this wrath. We need to stop this incorrect thinking. Now listen, we're going to, I want you to follow this, please. Stop the incorrect thinking of a manufactured dichotomy in God. Dichotomy splitting something in two. Wrath versus love. Compassion versus harshness. Two sides of a coin, etc. All that, throw it out. These are false distinctions. And then we ask, how can God be so wrathful? Isn't he loving? You've, you've, you've split him up. It, God is not, it's not on the one hand, wrath. On the other hand, love. Opposing attributes that we hold in tension. That's wrong. It breeds confusion. God's nature is not held in tension and in opposition. He doesn't exist in opposition to himself. Listen, God is God. He is one his attributes are simultaneous expressions of his oneness, his one singular character, not separate, disparate qualities. 
He's not to wrath and love. This dualism is a false construction, and it breeds false, erroneous thinking in other areas. Speaking of one attribute of God in contradistinction over and against another, these are artificial distinctions, and it's parceling up God, but his character is not chopped up. Can I give you an example? A man loves his wife. An attacker comes. The man lashes out and in defense of his wife kills the attacker. Is that love or wrath? What did you just ask? The question is nonsensical. It's both. Or better yet, it's a husband being a husband. His love demands wrath because they are the same thing acting in conjunction with one another. In fact, they're the same act, a projection of the husband's character and quality as a husband, but they're not distinct at all. Can I give you another analogy? When you put your foot on the gas, is the car moving towards something or away from things? What are we talking about here? The car is going, hit the gas. And so likewise, listen now, all sin is profanity and blasphemy and rebellion against God. All sin is an assault on his nature and his persons, an assault on his Trinitarian nature and the love expressed therein. And further, in light of the gospel, all sin is an assault particularly against the Son whom God the Father loves. And so his inner Trinitarian love demands a decisive, clear, and just retribution meted out against any provocateur and commandment commensurate with the offense. In short, God lashes out against any threat and encroachment on his Trinitarian nature and glory in defense of his persons and being. Is it love or wrath? What? Did you just ask? The question's nonsensical. It's both. Better yet, it's God being God. And this then has severe consequences for how we think in so many other areas of reasoning. A failure on this point has rendered the church unable to make a sound reasoned argument in favor of, let me give an example, for instance, capital punishment. We don't know how to defend it. Because why? Because capital punishment is mean and harsh and vengeful. Uh, What? Did you just say? No, it's not. Capital punishment, the death penalty, is justice and it's love, notably to the victim. It's wrathful punishment that lashes out against a criminal perpetrator. And that wrath is equal, coinciding and simultaneous with justice and love. Each are an entailment and facet of the other, but not at all distinct. Do you see now? Stop parceling up God. Likewise, a faithful preacher preaching faithfully. Let's use that example. It isn't a compassionate preacher versus wrathful, harsh versus kind. Faithful preaching is truthful. It's a projection of truth over and against the encroachment of the listener in the error of his thinking and living. It is a lashing out, as it were, against the invading perpetrator of falsehood and lies in a way commensurate and equal to the invasion. Again, citing the same analogy of a man defending his wife and reacting to an assailant. Deception is the assailant, truth is the husband, and the wife is the church. Is this kind of preaching truth, preaching loving or wrathful? Uh, it's the sword. I say again, third time, what did you just ask? The question's nonsensical. It's both. 
Better yet, it's simply the word being the word and the preacher being the preacher. A faithful preacher doesn't have sometimes a harsh, mean, wrathful tone versus a sermon that's more compassionate. One faithful preacher isn't more harsh versus a gentler one. A faithful preacher preaches, and he preaches the full truth with full force, whatever its several qualities and entailments and facets, at the exact same time, simultaneously, faithful preaching is just, and it's loving, and it's wrathful, and it's compassionate, and it's judgmental, and piercing, and discerning, and encouraging. All at once, because it is one thing itself, truthful preaching. You see, I'm just giving you two examples of where a wrong view of God is going to affect you. Dear Christian, you have weakened, you have emasculated, you have debilitated, feminized, and enervated your sensibilities. You have devitalized your thinking and your responsiveness to truthful preaching, your ability to receive and digest truthful preaching, and you have done this by a false, dualistic, dissected view of God, by chopping him into parts. A dualism which has created in you a settled revulsion to strong, bold teaching and polemical, assertive preaching. You have immunized yourself to sound preaching with a wrong view of God and have determined to defend your faulty position. Christian, think rightly. Stop dissecting God and dissecting your worldview. Do you see now with these examples that a weakened mind uninformed with the fundamental starting truths of God and a right view of him subsequently permeates and perverts thinking in every area? If you don't start with a right theology... Theology proper, God himself, and theology general, all things spiritual. It will pervert your thinking everywhere else. This is, by the way, I love this, understanding God's character, his oneness, is how you can have a passage in Ephesians simultaneously speaking of God's terrifying wrath, that you are by nature an object of wrath, and yet simultaneously talk about his surpassing love in the same place, listen, with total consistency. A right view of God's singular character explains it. See that? All right, so, number one, consider your old way and flee. Number two, consider God's saving grace and glorify him. Let's go on, verses four to seven. Verses four to seven, we see four emphatic attributes or facets or synonyms for God's grace. The source of salvation is this, God's rich mercy, his great love, his surpassingly rich grace, and his kindness to us in Christ. It's unmistakable the emphasis on the surpassing nature of all of these attributes because Paul uses descriptors to heighten the intensity. So it says in verse 4, God by his very nature is rich, and he's abundant in mercy, abundant in mercy. Notably, love in the original text, and maybe it comes through in your English, in the original Greek, is a cognate phrase. It uses the same word twice. It is the much love with which he loved us. The much love, the great love with which he loved us. And the us is conspicuously the church for whom Christ died and not the world, hence limited atonement. Did you, did you follow that? In Reformed theology. Total depravity, we just said. Unconditional election, God chooses you. We've been talking about that since the beginning of Ephesians. And now limited atonement. The, the great love with which he loved us, the church. This is the church he's talking about as the object of that love, not the world. This is limited atonement. Christ died for the church. Grace he expresses as the surpassing richness of his grace. Now, I missed this last week, but I want to point this out. 
he uses the same word from the previous passage at the end of chapter 1 for the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe. If you remember in chapter 1, verse 19, surpassing, surpassingly great power. It is the Greek word hooperbalon, and let me explain it. It is a verbal adjective, a participle. Hooper, uh, uh, the verb is hooperbalo, but a verbal adjective is, a, is a dis, it's, it's describing something with an action. And when you break that verb down, it means overthrowing. That's what the verb means, broken into its parts. Overthrowing. So his power to us who believe is far and above, and the riches of his grace are actively far and above. And I think that's important to know, because Paul decides to overemphasize. Do you realize the power at work in you is way overthrown higher and farther and more above than anything you can imagine? Likewise, his love for you. Formerly, we were objects of wrath, and now we are recipients of kindness. Here again, our trajectory in the middle section is drawn heavenward, since the goal in the long term in this passage is the same as it's expressed in chapter 1, ultimately to the praise of his glorious grace in the hereafter. Take a look. Go back to verse 7. In order that he might demonstrate or display or show in the coming ages... The, there it is again. Oh, no, that's it. Yeah, sorry. The surpassing riches of his grace in his kindness expressed to us in Christ Jesus. So it's to demonstrate his surpassing grace. God is said to be actively putting us on display in the coming ages to represent his surpassing grace like this. Look at her, the church. Behold her. All the principalities, all the forces, all the rulers look at her, the church. And it's somewhat reminiscent of a husband or groom putting his wife on a pedestal, smitten and struck with her, with her beauty, showing her to the whole of creation. This, this bride is mine. This is beauty to behold. This is, she is the finest of all, my glorious bride. Now this is bone of my bone. And this is flesh of my flesh. Behold her, the bride, with amazement. And her adornment is my adornment. And let praise come to the husband at the city gate because of the surpassing beauty of this, the perfect wife. Proverbs 31. Isn't that what happens? That wife is so glorious, the husband is praised at the city gate. And that's God to us in the coming ages. Behold her, my bride. Nothing like her. In all creation. Isn't she altogether wonderful? Prominent also in this passage is the theme again of in Christ. It happens four times in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. This is all only possible because of our union with Christ, our elder brother, our older brother. We're united with him. The verbs, interestingly, in verse 5 and 6, now, it doesn't come across in the English because we don't have verbs that translate exactly the same way, but they all have a prefix on them indicating together with. So the verbs that you have been made alive together with. That's many words in your English. It's one verb in the Greek. Made, he has made you alive together with. And then raised us up together with. And seated us together with. Those three verbs are all one verb in the Greek. Individually, each one is, is one verb. And the last two verbs, this is cool, are the exact same ones, those last two. Let me, let me point it out so I'm not confusing you. 
Look at verse 5. And us being dead in our, in, in our trespasses, he made alive in Christ Jesus, that's one of them, made alive together with Christ, by grace you were saved, and he, here it is, raised us up with, together with, and seated us together with. Those last two, raised up and seated, are the exact same ones in the startling description from last week of Christ's resurrection, ascension, and seating from the previous passage. Same verbs. Now, uh, can I point this out too? This is something I learned this week. It's a little nerdy for a moment, but just because it was interesting to me and helpful, and now I'm going to teach you something I just learned. I didn't know there were three prongs of the resurrection that theologians call the resurrection, the ascension, and then the session. And the session, I didn't know that, is the seating of Christ. That's considered, now studying Ephesians, I get it more, that's considered an aspect of his priestly, kingly work, that he's seated at God's right hand now as our advocate and ruler with all things subjected to him. So remember, resurrection, ascension, and session. These are all entailments of Christ's work that are extremely important. So you can see a conspicuous correlation between 2.6, what I just read you, and 1.20, which was describing Christ. So everything, this is what's cool, everything we learned last week in the mind-blowing explanation of the powerful working of God's might, that surpassingly great power, the working of the strength of his might, which he energized in Christ when he defied death and raised him, ascended him and seated him far above with all in subjection to him. This is now all true of you together with Christ. Is that not amazing? By the way, all these verbs are written in the past tense. He already did this. P.T. O'Brien says this, Paul's readers have experienced the same power of God, which was effective in Christ's resurrection and exaltation. I like this. Christ's destiny has become theirs. And we are succumbing in our walk to this silly notion that the sin in our lives will have mastery over us in this life. Again, weak theology breeds weak Christian living. And I rushed through this application last week at the end, so I'll hit it momentarily again here. If this power is at work in us, all these together with verbs, now even more, if this power has already worked in us, has already done its job, and coordinated our life with that of the Son in his very resurrection and his ascension and his seating. It's not just the power is at work in us. The power has accomplished it. It's already done. Do we dare suggest that something is hopeless with regard to sin? That we are resigned to defeat? Christian, reorient your thinking to see yourself where you truly are and then live that way. You are not enslaved to your sexual sin. I don't care that they tell me that if you were formerly a homosexual, now repentant, now you have to, you're stuck being same-sex attraction. No, you're not. You can marry like every other Christian and have a fully abundant, fruit-filled marriage in life. If God calls you that. You are not enslaved to a failed marriage or resigned to depression. You're not. This has already been done in you, for you, together with Christ. Listen to this long quote. This is great. Because they have been identified with Christ in his resurrection and exaltation, they too, that's Christians, have a position. Do you remember last week the emphasis I made on all the powers are subjected to his feet? He reigns. 
They too have a position, Christians, of superiority and authority over the evil powers. They no longer live under the authority and the coercion of the ruler of the king of the air. The implications are clear. Since they have been transformed from the old dominion to the new reign of Christ, they do not have to succumb to the evil one's designs. The power of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, is now available to them as they live in this world, take the stand against the devil's game, and struggle against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. The victory is ours. And a final last comment. There's obviously this salvation by grace theme we see through the whole thing, unconditional election that God shows us. By grace, it says, unmerited love or undeserved favor. Now, Stay with me, guys. I'm getting, I'm getting, look, you guys with me? Okay, all right, come on, come on, all right? I know we're getting into the, the weeds, the grammar and stuff, but that's okay. Listen, there's an interesting grammatical construction in the Greek that for it is by grace you have been saved. It's actually you are, it's a present verb. You are present, next verb, having been saved, past. That's a literal, clunky rendering. But the implication, it's final, complete. It was done in the past, but it's now a present, fixed state. You are already having been saved, and added on to that, seated with Christ. Same construction in verse 8. And in verse 8, it also tells us that it's through faith, not a work, but an appropriation of God's grace and his work to us. Faith is a response. Now, there's a question, if you see in verse 8, for by grace you are, having been saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves, of God the gift. What is the this? Uh, it's a little grammatically confusing, and people argue, is the gift the faith? God gave you the faith, or is it the whole thing? Salvation, you've been saved by grace through faith. Um, it's neater and nicer to say that the this refers to faith. And it's very clean, but I would agree with quite a few theologians and Calvin himself that it's not saying the gift is the faith, but the gift is the whole picture of you have been saved by grace through faith. This, not of yourselves, the gift of God. Either way, it's all of God the gift. It's not by works. No one can lay claim to saving himself in any way. And in the coming ages, the bride will reflect God's glory, not her own, like the moon to the sun will reflect his glory. Okay, leave what's behind and flee. Consider your old ways. Consider God's grace and glorify him. And finally, do the good works of faith. Do the good works of faith. It's very conspicuous in this passage that Paul, the preacher of justification by grace alone through faith alone, that's like Paul's banner all through the New Testament, this same Paul, in one of the clearest passages that we have detailing salvation by grace through faith alone, gives us, in the very same passage, in the very same train of thought, one of the clearest statements on the necessity and the primacy of good works in the Christian faith. Said otherwise, Paul has two twin pillars that he erects in the same paragraph. The very author fighting for gospel purity and salvation by grace pivots right into the obvious outworking of faith, which is good deeds as the centerpiece of Christian living, the necessary result of conversion, of being born again, do the deeds of righteousness. And interestingly, the basis for good works is the notion 
of elective grace because he starts verse 10 with a little word for or in light of. It's a continuing thought. We are saved. Let me, let me say it the way Paul's saying it. We are saved by grace, not by works, lest any man boast accordingly or thus corresponding with this election by which you've been saved. We are the poema of God. We are the craft, craftsmanship of God, his created masterpiece, that noun. We are his created masterpiece. He did all this, made us thus, and called us thus, and thus transformed us. For from the beginning we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance, which is also one verb in the Greek. It's prepared with a prefix that means before. Prepared before in order that for the express purpose that in these works we should walk. What's really also cool, a lot of these cool things you get from commentary. I just didn't come up with them in my head. But when you read commentaries, you'll learn a lot of interesting things. It's very cool, the distinction between walking in verse 2 in the course of the world, according to the devil and the flesh, and walking in the beforehand prepared good works, righteousness. There's a clear framing or grammatical bookend. He uses the same verb. So what then? Let's wrap this up. Let's land this plane, as they say. You ready? All right. What then? Well, Christian, enough of this grace abuse, so characteristic of the modern evangelical church. Saved and you're in, and then works don't matter. That's a dead faith. It's a false faith. It's a hypocritical faith. It's a pharisaical faith. Enough of turning grace into a license to sin, which Paul heartily rebukes, by the way, in Romans 6. Enough of this self-righteous hypocrisy that says, don't confront my sin. Any challenge to my worldliness and my carnal living and any call to holiness is right. Here it is. Legalism. That's what they say. It's a cheap, stale, worn-out accusation against so many faithful preachers and Christians. I am so, so weary of that. It is so cheap. It is so liberal Christian playbook, chapter one, page one, paragraph one. It is so predictable and vapid at this point. I'm weary of it. Are you not weary of it? That's legalism. Enough of that mentality. I said I believe. That's all Christianity is, salvation by believing, right? Salvation by faith. But then live however you want, and the attitude is, you can't tell me how to live my Christian life. Listen, works matter. To this end, you were saved to the doing of good works. You are, let's put it all together, in Christ, connected to Christ. All that we have heard that he accomplished, all of this salvation just described over a chapter and a half, election in all of this powerful energy, working, raising, ascending, seating, subjecting authorities. We are also caught up together with him in all of this. So this is the application, live out the new life. That is the whole trajectory of what Paul's attempting to say and to which he is exhorting the church. While the eternal scope, yes, is the long tomorrow, the redemption of the possession, the enjoyment of the inheritance, the praise of his glorious grace. That's the eternal perspective. The present practical trajectory is holy, goodly living in this life now. Anything less, a workless Christianity is no sort of Christianity. James 2, faith without works is dead. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Holiness is the aim or the goal in this life. Ephesians 2, find out what pleases the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7, we perfect holiness out of reverence for God. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. And then in Matthew 15, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Let me explain that in light of our modern situation. Jesus in Matthew 15 here describes a confessional religion. They honor me with their lips. They verbally assert, I believe 
while one's life does not demonstrate too true commitment to God and holiness. Rather, there is commitment to a personally manufactured standard that has the thin veneer of religion suitable in the individual's mind to adequately meet his own man-centered threshold of what qualifies him as a Christian, but no more. And it's funny that folks so living notoriously call the ones, us who seek holiness, they call us Pharisees and legalists. But this pretense of Christianity, honor with lips alone, is the height of Pharisaical hypocrisy. Remember, the Pharisees were not rebuked so much for being legalists, this is important, listen, but for being hypocrites. That was Christ's choice word. It wasn't their desire for holiness that Christ rebuked. It wasn't. But it was their discordant lives. That's what he rebuked. Namely, that they preached one thing and yet lived another. They lived entirely contrary and differently than what they claimed to be, followers of God, with lives steeped in all manner and form of sin and carnality and indulgence. They were hypocrites. All the while, this wickedness in their lives was sheltered under the facade of claiming a religious label with some accumulated traditions that upheld an otherwise hollow claim that cannot be us as Christians because that's not Christianity our lives must match our confession and that's what Paul's saying so consider the old way and flee consider God's grace and give him glory and then consider the good works to which he's called you and walk in them and no more talk of messiness and sin's entrenchment let's speak of holiness going from glory to ever-increasing glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Ephesians, for challenging us and teaching us. Encourage the saints, build them up in the knowledge of you, which then will flow out into lives of devotion, holiness, and right thinking in all areas. The praise of your glorious grace and the doing of the good works that you've commissioned us for. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. And we pray. Amen. Amen. Second service starts in a little bit. We'll see you guys then. Thank you.